The ransomware attack is also exposing new vulnerabilities from oil and gas to power grids to dams to the nation's water supply. How about elections? Anybody say anything about elections? Anybody concerned about that? Just me? Okay. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling there's something right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yeah, maybe I just overworry. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. Also in Red Bluff and Redding, California on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's Queso and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ. Down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ. In Concord, New Hampshire, on WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. And yes, we stream coast to coast and around the globe every day on the internets, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Bird and Square Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow says me... From Bradblog.com, thank you very much for joining us today for another thrilling edition of the Bradcast. We have got a lot of coverage of this Colonial Pipeline ransomware attack that is, uh, or at least could, uh, cripple the East Coast in the days ahead as it has shut down the huge pipeline system that transports nearly 50% of all gas, jet fuel, diesel, used all up and down the uh, eastern seaboard as the network runs uh, the network of pipelines runs all the way from Texas up to New England it's not just one pipeline oh no it's a whole pipeline system it is indeed hi Desi Doyen hi We'll uh, be covering that, of course, a little bit in your Green News report coming up a bit later. Also, we'll be covering it with cybersecurity journalist, uh, one who we have uh, talked to about computerized voting system concerns over the years. Kim Zetter will join us momentarily because she has been digging into this rather disturbing attack on the Colonial Pipeline, which in truth is just one of increasingly many more such attacks on businesses, large and small, on banks, on hospitals, uh, state and local governments, police, as we are seeing in Washington, D.C. today. I'll get to that uh, in a bit. Uh, and yes, even voting and tabulation systems, which I hope to discuss with Kim as well, who is an expert in national security, specifically cyber security issues. But before we slide down that slippery oil soaked slope, <laughs> uh, some late breaking news today on several stories that we have also been covering on the show of late. The first is a story that we covered in detail on the broadcast last week. 
I think it was last week with NRA expert and author Igor Volsky. Was that last week? I think so. I think it was. Boy, time just all yeah, runs together. It do. Everything happening all at once. And uh, this, I would say, unlike the Colonial Pipeline story, is actually very, very good news. A federal judge in Texas on Tuesday dismissed the National Rifle Association's bankruptcy case, leaving the powerful gun rights group to face a New York state lawsuit that accuses it of financial abuses and aims to put the corrupt 150-year-old supposedly nonpartisan nonprofit group out of business completely. The case uh, heard down in Texas was over whether the NRA should be allowed to incorporate in Texas instead of in New York, where the state is suing the group in an effort to dissolve them based on what has been detailed as a massive corruption and self-enrichment scheme by the group's leadership. Though headquartered in Virginia, the NRA was chartered as a nonprofit in New York State back in 1871 and is still incorporated in the state. Judge Harlan Hale said in a written order that he was dismissing the case because he found the bankruptcy was not filed in good faith. Oh, you don't say. <laughs> The court believes the NRA's purpose in filing bankruptcy is less like a traditional bankruptcy case, the judge wrote, in which a debtor is faced with financial difficulties or a judgment that it cannot satisfy, and more like cases in which courts have found bankruptcy was filed to gain an unfair advantage in litigation or to avoid a regulatory scheme. That, as Volsky detailed on this show last week, is unlawful. You can't use bankruptcy, basically, to, to try to get out of litigation. That's unlawful. And incredibly enough, the dumb NRA even admitted to it during the course of the trial, telling their membership at the time that they're in great financial shape. It's nothing to worry about. They're only declaring bankruptcy in order to avoid the lawsuit from New York Attorney General Letitia James and to reconstitute themselves in the state of Texas, where that state's attorney general does not seem to care much about corruption and violations of, you know, the law that he's supposed to be overseeing and enforcing. He himself, Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton, is himself currently facing state securities fraud felonies himself. And he's under investigation also by the FBI after most of his top staffers quit and reported the attorney general to the feds, alleging corruption and abuse of office, doing favors for donors, etc., etc. Welcome to Texas. So sure, the NRA leadership, in particular its top executive Wayne LaPierre, uh, is accused of siphoning millions of dollars from the nonprofit to pay for personal travel all over the world, to stay on these huge yachts owned by NRA contractors, spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on uh, custom tailored suits from an exclusive Beverly Hills tailor. All stuff that is prohibited for nonprofit groups. But sure, come on down to Texas, y'all. We'd love to have you.
Well, obviously, the NRA believes that it is above the law and won't be held accountable for its blatant, I mean, just stunning violations of law. Well, that's what they think, but apparently Judge Hale does not. His decision in federal court on Tuesday follows 11 days of testimony and arguments. Lawyers for uh, New York and the NRA's former advertising agency grilled Wayne LaPierre. Mmm, grilled LaPierre. (laughs) Delicious. The uh, group's embattled top exec, he acknowledged putting the NRA into Chapter 11 bankruptcy without the knowledge or assent of most of its board and other top officers and even its general counsel. Wayne LaPierre just went out and declared bankruptcy, didn't tell anybody. The judge noted, quote, excluding so many people from the process of deciding to file for bankruptcy, including the vast majority of the board of directors, the chief financial officer and the general counsel, he said, is nothing less than shocking. Lawyers for uh, New York Attorney General Letitia James argued that the case was an attempt by NRA leadership to escape accountability for using the group's coffers as their personal piggy bank. But the NRA's attorneys said it was a legitimate effort to avoid a political attack by James, who happens to be a Democrat. So, of course, it's an attack. We didn't do anything wrong. Or if we did, it's okay because it's political. See? LaPierre testified that he kept the bankruptcy largely a secret to prevent leaks from the group's 76-member board, which is divided in its support for him. The NRA declared bankruptcy in January, five months after the Attorney General, uh, her office, uh, sued seeking its dissolution following allegations that the executives illegally diverted tens of millions of dollars for lavish personal trips, no-show contracts, and other questionable expenditures. James tweeted after the ruling was made, quote, the NRA does not get to dictate if and where it will answer for its actions, and our case will continue in New York court No one, she said, is above the law. Hmm, no one? Well, uh, James, uh, Attorney General James, as you will recall, is also investigating this uh, other New York business called the Trump Organization and its disgraced namesake leader and former president for bank and tax fraud. So I wonder how that's going, as long as no one is above the law. Attorney General James is uh, the state's chief law enforcement officer in New York. She has regulatory power over nonprofit organizations incorporated there. She sued the NRA last August, saying at the time that the, quote, breadth and depth of the corruption and the illegality at the NRA justified its complete closure. She took similar action successfully to force the closure of former President Donald Trump's phony charitable foundation after alleging that he used it to advance business and political interests instead of as a proper charitable organization. The uh, founder of Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense in America, Shannon Watts, said in a series of tweets today that the bankruptcy dismissal, quote, comes at the worst possible time for the NRA, right as background checks are being debated in the U.S. Senate. It will be onerous, if not impossible, for the NRA to effectively oppose gun safety and lobby lawmakers while simultaneously fighting court battles and mounting debt, said Watts. 
So there's some good news, uh, at least. Yeah, some accountability news. Uh, nothing else is uh, quite so good today. Unfortunately. Sorry to say. So you may want to leave the room at this time. <laughs> In any event, uh, let's go to Arizona, where the uh, right-wing group who believes the election was stolen from Donald Trump has been uh, given permission uh, and and $150,000 to recount all 2.1 million ballots cast in Maricopa County, that's Phoenix, uh, in, in their hopes of proving that Donald Trump had the election stolen from him there. Well, that effort is even beginning to embarrass Republicans in the state Senate. The state Senate is the one that gave uh, this group permission in the first place to carry out this audit theater. Well, Republican Arizona State Senator Paul Boyer apparently now has regrets about backing his uh, fellow GOP senators push for this shady audit of Maricopa County's 2020 election ballots. He says, quote, it makes us look like idiots. He said in comments to The New York Times, quote, looking back, I didn't think it would be this ridiculous. It's embarrassing to be a state senator at this point, he said. Well, good. I'm glad he noticed, but apparently he's not all that embarrassed. Uh, At least, uh, well, Arizona Republican lawmakers as a whole are not that embarrassed about what they are doing because, well, today... Just before air, the state's uh, governor, Republican governor, Doug Ducey, signed legislation purging infrequent voters from a list of those who automatically get a mail-in ballot in each election, ignoring the protests from Democrats and prominent business leaders in the state who said the measure would suppress the votes of people of color. The Republican governor acted less than one hour after the passage of this bill in the state legislature following hours of tense debate in the state Senate, during which Republicans tried to silence Democrats who said the bill would perpetuate systemic racism. Republicans have only a single vote edge in the Arizona House and Senate, so legislation there has been tougher to pass than it has in other states like Florida, which just made all voters reapply for a mail ballot every two years rather than dropping those who aren't active enough as they see it. The measure signed on Tuesday would remove people who do not return their mail-in ballot for two consecutive election cycles from the permanent early voting list, which allows voters to automatically receive a ballot before each election. About 75 percent of voters in Arizona are on the list. Affected voters would then get a mailer asking if they want to remain on the list. But if they don't respond within 90 days, they will be removed. Democrats say the legislation will disenfranchise voters who expect to get a ballot that never arrives with an especially strong impact, they say, on people of color. Democratic State Senator Juan Mendez said it makes me think you don't like our voters or who has the potential to vote. He told Republicans this whole thing looks like nothing more than a ruse to disenfranchise voters who you don't like. The uh, state Republican state uh, Senator uh, Vince Leach. Well named. Said uh, we need to leave this chamber ensuring our voters we have election integrity in the state of Arizona. Well, you got a funny way of showing it, Senator Leach. 
Repeated reviews have found no problems with the election results in Arizona or elsewhere for that matter. But, of course, Trump supporters still believe his loss was the result of fraud, even though they have no evidence to support that. Governor Ducey in Arizona cast the new legislation as a modest cost-saving improvement to an accessible voting system that Arizona built over three decades. They're just saving money. He blasted businesses that have weighed in against the Republican voting laws in other states that they see as suppressing the vote, and he urged them to, quote, know what you're talking about before you say anything. That in reference to the law that he signed today. Critics of Arizona's law warned of economic backlash to the state, noting the Phoenix area is scheduled to host the scheduled to host the 2023 Super Bowl. We'll see if that stays in place. And the 2024 NCAA Basketball Final Four. Major League Baseball, you'll recall, pulled the All-Star game from Atlanta after Georgia Republicans passed a sweeping anti-voting law there. The owner of the Arizona Cardinals, the football team there, Michael Bidwell, was among more than 50 executives who signed a letter urging lawmakers to oppose the bill and others like it. So we'll see what action he takes now that they have signed this bill into law. In Arizona, the GOP's most far-reaching proposals, given its closely divided state legislature, have died, thankfully, including measures that would allow the legislature to overturn voters and appoint its own electoral college delegates if it wanted to, for any reason that it felt like it. That hasn't passed. That's good news. But... More narrowly focused measures, like the one today, have advanced. Ducey also signed a bill that stopped implementation of a settlement struck between Democratic Secretary of State Katie Hobbs and the Navajo Nation, which would have given time for people who forgot to sign their mail-in ballots, uh, give them time to fix the problem after the election. That was agreed to between the Secretary of State and the Navajo Nation, I don't know how that would add any uh, fraud to the system. Oh, I forgot to say you forgot to sign the ballot. Come on in and sign it. OK, not giving voters a chance to cure any problems with their mail in ballot is just evil. Well, the evil governor uh, also signed that bill that Good stopped Lord. that uh, settlement. An analysis, meanwhile, for voting rights groups found that about one hundred and forty thousand registered voters, including more than 30,000 Latino voters meet the criteria to receive one of these warning mailers. And if they don't respond, they will be purged in the state that Joe Biden won uh, in 2020 by a little over just 10,000 votes. But hey, at least the 2020 elections didn't get hit with a ransomware attack, as I spent many sleepless nights last year worrying about. Maybe Arizona lawmakers ought to be more worried about that sort of thing, more worried about that than preventing people from voting. As my guest coming up next will likely explain, unlike phony fraud concerns, this one is quite real. Kim Zetter on the amazing Colonial Pipeline ransomware attack and how much we should worry about such an attack on our elections. That's straight ahead on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Brad. Our nightmare election may be over, but new ones 
are on the way. Here at the Bradcast and Bradblog.com, we fight for election integrity all year around, like no other media outlet in the nation. But of course, we need your help to do it. Please stop by bradblog.com slash donate to make an automated monthly pledge of any amount you like, or even just a one-time-only contribution to help us remain on your public airwaves and completely independent. The fight for voting rights, civil rights, and to save our planet continues. Please help us continue that fight independently over your public airwaves by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate right now. Go ahead, do it right now. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. How often do I have uh, a legitimate excuse to play that song? Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. The the cyber attack that forced the shutdown of the East Coast's largest gasoline pipeline has prompted fresh questions about the vulnerability of the country's critical infrastructure to cyber attacks. On Friday, Colonial Pipeline said it learned that hackers had infected its corporate computer networks with ransomware, malicious code used to seize control of computers and extract payments from victims. The breach, according to the company, affected Colonial's business networks, which it uses for tasks like managing payrolls, reporting data to regulators and invoicing customers. Colonial says it has deactivated those networks, which run the corporate business side of the company systems. But it has also shut off the much more sensitive technology that runs the actual pipeline itself. A precaution, reports suggest, aimed at preventing the hackers from reaching it as well if they haven't already. As a result, Colonial shut down its entire primary pipeline system, which runs more than 5,500 miles from Houston, Texas, up to Linden, New Jersey, transporting a full 45 percent of the gas, jet fuel and diesel fuel for the East Coast of the U.S., according to the company. Over the past few years, ransomware attacks like this have grown from an occasional nuisance to an omnipresent threat, as Eric Geller at Politico described on Monday. Victims have included hospital systems, school districts and even the D.C. Police Department, which, according to reports on Tuesday, is currently said to be negotiating with a Russian-based ransomware group seeking $4 million to prevent them from releasing information on police informants, which experts say is information that, if released, could put lives at risk. And the uh, group says they will do so if more money is not offered by the police department. In a statement released on Monday, the hacker group said uh, to be holding the D.C. police network hostage, says the department's offer of $100,000 is not enough and that they plan to release, quote, all the data that it stole from the department if it does not, quote, raise the price. 
The negotiations reached a dead end, the group said. The amount we were offered does not suit us. That the D.C. Metropolitan Police appear to be negotiating with the cyber criminals themselves is disturbing enough and also an indication of how serious these attacks can be. And yes, in addition to going after hospitals during the covid crisis, banks, small businesses, police departments and major fossil fuel industry companies like the currently crippled Colonial Ransomware attacks in recent years have also targeted state and municipal governments. As I noted throughout 2020, one of my greatest fears regarding the 2020 presidential election was the disruption of a uh, of a ransomware attack that could prevent votes from being cast or counted, particularly in jurisdictions which rely on computerized voting systems like the entire state of Louisiana, where a ransomware attack last year hit the state just after they had held their primaries. While voting was not disrupted, those looking for results on the Secretary of State's website at the time were out of luck for a few days as statewide government networks were shut down by the attack. Ransomware attacks increased some 30 percent from 2018 to 2020, according to FBI reports. The pandemic led to a significant increase in ransomware with the number of attacks more than doubling year over year, according to a different report, as information on such attacks are difficult to track and not always shared with the public. In the meantime, as longtime cybersecurity journalist Kim Zetter reported over the weekend, the federal government itself appears to be stepping in to take action in response to the Colonial Pipeline attack as a matter of helping to protect the nation's critical infrastructure which the Colonial Pipeline, though a privately run enterprise, is considered to be. The U.S. Department, uh, Transportation Department on Sunday issued an emergency order that allows backed-up inventories of oil and fuel that are sitting in tanks and refineries in Texas and other parts of the country to be transported to New York more quickly via trucks while the pipeline is offline uh, by easing federal restrictions on drivers. The emergency move, for example, eases restrictions on the hours that truck drivers can work. So, great, they get to drive longer hours with trucks full of fuel. What could possibly go wrong? On Monday at the White House, President Biden vowed that the federal government would take further action to prevent ransomware attacks on critical infrastructure in the U.S., increase federal resources to hold criminals accountable, while encouraging congressional passage of his $2.25 trillion American Jobs Plan in order to further harden the nation's critical infrastructure against such attacks. My administration takes this very seriously. We have efforts underway with the FBI and DOJ, Department of Justice, to disrupt and, and uh, prosecute ransomware criminals. And my administration will be pursuing a global effort of ransomware attacks by transnational criminals who often use global money laundering networks to carry them out. My administration is also committed to safeguarding our critical infrastructure, which much of which is privately owned and managed like Colonial. Private entities are making their own determination on cybersecurity, so to jumpstart greater private sector investment in cybersecurity, 
We launched a new public-private initiative in April. It begins with a 100-day sprint to improve cybersecurity in the electric sector. And we'll follow that with similar initiatives in natural gas pipelines, water, and other sectors. In addition to companies stepping up, we need to invest uh, to safeguard our critical infrastructure. That's one of the many things my American Jobs Plan is designed to do. That was Joe Biden responding to the uh, attack on the Colonial Pipeline on uh, Monday. As in the ongoing attack on the D.C. Metropolitan Police, the hackers of Colonial, which who call themselves Dark Side, say they have stolen nearly 100 gigabytes of data from the company and have threatened to publish that data online if Colonial does not pay the ransom. All of this, according to Kim Zetter at her Zero Day newsletter, has left companies like refineries who feed oil into the pipeline along the way scrambling to figure out what to do with the oil and fuel that they have sitting in tanks as they have received little word from Colonial about when the pipeline will be back online. One company source told Zetter that he heard Colonial's main pipeline would, quote, not be fixed in one to two days, but won't take six weeks. He's not sure why Colonial would provide such a wide-ranging time period, but said, quote, it's very concerning for our interests as he worries that they will run out of storage for refined fuel, which may then result in the need to cut back on refining, leading to even longer-term strains on the entire supply chain. Joining us now to help us understand not only the attack on Colonial, but the quickly growing problem of ransomware attacks on all sorts of industries, including, yes, the election industry, though I hate using the word industry there. In any event, uh, she, uh, she is uh, Kim Zetter is a longtime cybersecurity and national security journalist whose work we have followed and reported on for years via Wired, Politico, the New York Times, Vice's Motherboard, The Intercept and many others. She's also the author of the book Countdown to Zero Day, Stuxnet and the launch of the world's first digital weapon and Happily, one of the few folks in the nation who has been covering related concerns when it comes to e-voting and tabulation systems for at least as long as we have. And now she also continues to cover all of that on her own newsletter called Zero Day. Kim Zetter, thank you for joining us again today on the broadcast, as I know you're still in the middle of trying to report all of this out. Yes, thanks for having me, Brad. Uh, <laughs> you know, in, in one sense, I, I'm, I'm happy to talk to you about something other than voting systems for a change. Uh, though i got to tell you, the more I read up on this attack on Colonial and on the D.C. police today... And other reports, the more I keep going back to my happily unrealized fears last year about a ransom attack on a U.S. election. But let's start with Colonial first today. Uh, the company has said the attack is on their main corporate computer networks, not on the systems that run the pipeline itself. But uh, we have found in our own reporting on environmental and energy issues that Colonial has a less than stellar record on telling the truth about various things in recent years. Uh, have you been able to confirm their claims in that regard that only the corporate network, not the pipeline itself, has been affected by this attack? Um, no, I haven't. I mean, we have had at least three announcements from Colonial, though, since the uh, forensic investigators 
started to analyze their mm-hmm. breach, mm-hmm. and all of those announcements make it clear um, that there's no evidence that the uh, what's called the operational network that you're describing mm-hmm. um, was breached. Uh, so it was, it was just the um, the business IT network. Um, now there is a connection between those two networks, uh-huh. and so there is a possibility that if ransomware gets into the business network, it can then also get into the operational network. But it doesn't look like that that happened in this case. Well, if it hasn't, is the reason for shutting down the actual pipeline network to prevent it from uh, moving, uh, you know, from the uh, network, from one network into the other? Or is there an actual, are there additional concerns uh, that have forced Colonial to shut down the pipeline as well? Well, this is sort of standard operating procedure with ransomware. Um, You know, the minute that one system gets locked down, if you notice it, um, it can travel very swiftly through the network. And so if there is, you know, if someone notices that this is happening, one of the first orders is to disconnect all of the machines to stop that from traveling. Mm -hmm. Um, And in this case, they didn't know yet. Um, where else it had been. They saw it on the business IT network. You know, you can see this because the system actually locks, of course, and uh, an, an announcement comes up on the computer saying, you know, your system has been locked, pay the ransom, and we'll unlock it. Mm-hmm. And so without really knowing um, how badly they were infected, I think that it was uh, wise of them to, uh, with an abundance of caution, take that um, operational mm-hmm. network offline. Um, but there's also one one other possibility why they might have taken that offline because, you know, there are people who say that they should have been set up in a way that they could have continued to operate the tenancy, even with a ransomware infection. And so there there's a curiosity among experts that I've spoken with about why um, they maybe didn't have a plan mm-hmm. that would have allowed them to remain operational. And one person that I spoke with who works for uh, sort of an upstream gas company that actually feeds fuel into the Colonial Pipeline, um, explained to me that the two systems, the IT network and the operational network, are connected by a data line that tells um, a business computer how much fuel is being delivered to each person, to each distributor. Uh-huh. And based on that amount of fuel flow, then it's, it uh, generates an automatic, automatic invoice. And so if the IT system where that ticketing invoicing system lies is taken down, then the data that's coming from the operational network is, is basically useless. And that would mean that Colonial doesn't have a way of actually monitoring how much gas or how much fuel is being distributed to, is being distributed to customers uh-huh. and has no way then also of getting paid automatically. Um, so the so auto- if it, if it, yeah, so the automated invoice system uh, might be on the IT network side, and so people can start taking off all the oil they want or gas or whatever, and there'll be no way to essentially to charge them for it with the system down or tra- even track how much they're taking, uh, in theory. Well, you could do it manually, uh-huh. um, but the, uh, the experts explained to me that you actually would have to send someone to the site where the fuel is being offloaded, oh, um, and the control systems there will give you the data that you need, um, and then, of course, the invoicing would have to be done manually as well. So if Colonial didn't have that backup um, you know, protocol in place uh-huh. to do that manually, if all of the system went down, automa- the automated system went down, then that would have been a reason for them to take down the pipeline so that, as you point out, fuel would continue to flow and they couldn't get paid for it. Um, but that's speculation. We don't know if that right. is one of the reasons. Um, but given that the business network was taken offline, 
it sounds like a plausible scenario. And given that it's a 5,000 mile or so uh, pipeline, having to have uh, someone manually at each yes. uh, input or, or offtake, uh, good luck with that. Uh, are we able to get a handle yet on whether the, the shutdown is actually allowing negotiations here with the cyber terrorists, or, or is it meant to try to get the malware out of their system? Any transparency into that question? Um, it all happened simultaneously. I've spoken with other people who worked these ransomware operations, and um, you, well, you usually have multiple teams in your network. You bring in the forensic investigative team, which is, in this case, we know is the company called Mandiant, um, who specializes in, in forensic investigations. Mm-hmm. And simultaneously, then, you've got to start negotiating with the ransomware operators, and that's a full-time job. And so there are companies that that's what they do. They're specialized in this now. Unfortunately, this is an industry now. Um, yeah. And so they handle the back-and-forth negotiations with the attackers. They negotiate the price. They arrange for the price with the insurance provider. And they also then um, manage the decryption tool. So once they've paid for the ransom, uh, the attackers will provide them with a decryption tool that can then be used to unlock systems. And so this intermediary company that does this will want to test this tool, first of all, to make sure that it, it doesn't contain man- malware as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it will start decrypting systems. And if they have problems with the decryptor, if it's buggy for some reason, then they will also have to do this troubleshooting with the attackers. I, I, you mentioned this is an industry now. It, it really is. And I'm surprised, uh, frankly, at how many organizations, uh, victims really, uh, including, as I mentioned, the D.C. police today, actually do pay off these ransoms. Didn't we used to have a no-negotiating-with-terrorists position in the U.S., or was that sort of just for for public consumption? Because it seems like these guys are making a lot of money off these attacks from a lot of different organizations, uh, you know, companies, non-governmental companies, governmental uh, organizations. They're, they're, They're getting paid. Yeah, they're getting a lot of money. Um, I spoke with someone who worked for on an incident. Um, the victim did pay. They paid $2 million. And the funny thing is, is they actually had their network backed up. So they didn't have to pay. They could have restored all the data that they needed from the systems that they had. The reason they decided to pay was because it was going to be much more expedient and faster to actually get the decryption key and get access to the locked data than it was going to be to um, restore wow. all of the data in their computers. It can it takes um, one to two months actually to get completely restored. Wow. Um, so so you know for business continuity and for critical you know infrastructure like hospitals, police departments, you know you can't afford. Uh, to not have access to your systems for, you know, weeks or a month mm-hmm. at a time. And so that's why the payments are happening. The president is calling for hardening critical infrastructure like this, but is there really much that can be done to prevent these sorts of attacks? I mean, in many cases, as I understand it, they're not even necessarily hacked, uh, hacks themselves. They're phishing attacks via email where an employee is tricked into turning over a, a network password. Um, can much actually be done here? And relatedly, how how would his uh, American Jobs Plan, uh, which he's he, which he says will will help that, uh, how will it help that? Um, well, I first want to address your your um, statement about it not being really a hack. These are hacks. Even if you get in through a phishing attempt, that doesn't bring down an entire network with ransomware. Mm-hmm. Um, you come in through a phishing attempt, and then you've got to work your way, get escalated. Uh, 
privileges mm -hmm. inside the network by stealing the, the passwords of uh, system administrators, things like that. So you work your way up to the main servers, mm -hmm. and that's when you deploy your, your ransomware. And then it's, it's deployed on all of these systems simultaneously. Um, so that really is a true breach. It's a true intrusion. It takes some skill um, to get to that point and then to deploy the ransomware. In terms of what, what you can do, I mean, you know, as I point out, this is sort of standard operating procedure for hackers. You get into a network and you, you travel through it. And so there are things that you can do to be detecting that activity during the time that they're traveling through the network and also to prevent, uh, you know, them getting further into the network. Um, but these are things that have long been known, and it's just, you know, a matter that it's, security is hard. Yes. And it's hard <laughs> for everyone from, you know, McDonald's to the Department of Defense. So, you know, victim blaming isn't the way, you know, that it's going to, that things are going to get fixed. Mm -hmm. But awareness of the techniques and, you know, talking about, you know, proper backups and things like that. I, I, but like I said, you know, the backups aren't necessarily going to be a solution for a lot of victims here. Um, and that's, that's unfortunate. And uh, I know uh, your time is short today, and I want to ask you about how this ties into elections. But very quickly, this this, parti this particular ransomware group calling itself Dark Side is interesting in a number of ways. Are are they are are they confirmed to be the culprits here? And and what can you tell us about this particular outfit that seems to be uh, different, for example, than the than the you know the group that is uh, threatening to release um, well life threatening information on the D.C. Metro Police today. Darkseid seems to uh, be a different type of outfit. Well, um, so it is confirmed that it is Darkseid. It's their, it's their ransomware malware, mm -hmm. um, and it's confirmed because you, you, can, you can see the tools that are used in previously known Darkseid uh, ransomware infections. Um, the operators, um, they operate in the Russian-speaking space. Mm -hmm. They sell their wares on underground Russian language forums, um, and so that's why you're seeing these assertions from the government that this is a Russian um, or East European group um, doing these uh, infections. Um, and in terms of, um, you know, how they might be different, they're not really different. You know, they are going for high-end targets. They have claimed that they won't touch certain targets like hospitals, government agencies, nonprofits, schools, but that's not for any kind of ethical consideration. It's simply because that's not where the money is. Hmm. Uh, the money is at the, in the large corporations mm -hmm. like Colonial Pipeline, who will who will be willing, who has the who have the ability to pay a lot. The the group actually has a phone number, a help desk to facilitate negotiations with with victims, uh, and they and they seem to say that they were uh, concerned uh, about this particular attack in the future. They might want to avoid social consequences. They claim, adding, "quote Our goal is to make money and not creating problems for society." Uh, that's one of the reasons I said they sounded different, uh, as apparently they sort of lease out their services to other groups, and they're suggesting they weren't careful enough about the effects of this particular hack. I don't know if we should buy any of that from them. Yeah, this is PR. Um, we've seen this before from other groups where they, after, uh, you know, hospitals started to, to get... Um, Hospitals started to get infected with ransomware uh, in a spate of attacks in 2014-15, around 15-16. Mm -hmm. um, and we really started to see a lot of hospitals get taken down. 
And so there were ransomware groups that announced that they would never, they would not infect hospitals anymore. And of course, they they continue to infect hospitals mm. um, because their 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 goal is to make money, and that's where you're going to get money. Mm. You're going to get money from a critical system that needs to be up. Kim Zetter, the last time we talked to you on this show, I believe it was when you were reporting on a group of researchers who had discovered that election systems all over the country were remaining online uh, uh, with modems that were were vulnerable and so forth, even when elections were not ongoing. Uh, It was in about a dozen states or so, as I recall. And also, as I recall, a number of the voting system vendors at the time uh, who's in, who had installed these systems in jurisdictions around the country said there was nothing to worry about because the systems were behind firewalls, uh, some of them made by Cisco. But you report at Zero Day that the Colonial Pipeline Company system was also behind a Cisco firewall, and it was still uh, breached in some way. Uh, first, am I remembering all of this correctly? Well, the, the, there's a difference between where the firewall is situated. The voting machines were outward-facing, Internet-facing, mm-hmm. on the public Internet. So the firewall was between the system and the public Internet. And so from the public Internet, you could get to those those election systems. The Cisco ASA firewall that I'm talking about at Colonial Networks, at Colonial Pipeline, mm-hmm. is a firewall that sits internally inside the network between that uh, that business network that I described mm-hmm. and the operational network. So it's a different location, it's not outward-facing, and you, you, you can't get to the fat firewall from the Internet. So, but you can get to the firewall from the Internet with the election systems. Am I understanding you to say that that's perhaps even yes. more disturbing? Yes, I mean, the, the firewall, uh, when you've got an Internet-facing system and a firewall in front of it, uh-huh. um, the only thing that's protecting someone to get to the system behind that firewall is a bulletproof firewall, and a bulletproof firewall doesn't exist. And this particular firewall at, uh, that, uh, that the, the voting machines are using, the Cisco firewall, has had a number of security vulnerabilities over the years. And uh, in, in at least one case, a pretty severe uh, vulnerability that would allow someone to completely bypass any protections in that firewall, preventing them from getting out, from getting inside. So what then, if anything, prevents, uh, and I, I mentioned earlier, this is one of my greatest fears, was one of my great fears last year. Uh, what, if anything, prevents a ransomware attack like this from shutting down Elections nothing. during nothing. early nothing, <laughs> nothing. No, no, and that was the big concern of DHS yep. prior to the election that someone was going to lock up uh, some county office on the night of an election. Um, so, I mean, in that case, you know, the forward the forward facing part of an election is not the actual voting part, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the voting part would still run. Uh, voters would still be able to go to the polls and cast their ballot. The only thing that would be um, uh, made difficult in that case is the reporting, uh, the reporting side, so mm-hmm. the final tallying of votes. So if you've got a system in the back end that is taken down by ransomware, um, you can still collect the votes from the voting machines, and you could you know, potentially tally them on a separate system. Uh, presumably the voting machine vendors would provide you know, a backup system or something like that. So you'd still be able to get your results. 
But of course, you know, a locked up, you know, ransomed election system in a county election office does not inspire any confidence whatsoever. Uh, uh, not to mention electronic poll books that we now rely on at the polling place. It seems to me those would also be shut down and then people would not necessarily be able to vote that day. Uh, am I wrong? Uh, no, I mean, I, it, it's it, not all poll books actually communicate with the back end network. Some of them actually have the data stored on them the night before the election. And so all of the data is stored locally. So even if a back end network gets taken down, um, then that would be okay. But but also polling places are supposed to have a printout, a backup printout, uh-huh. unless, of course, it's a large voting center um, where, you know, potentially yeah. hundreds of thousands of voters can go to that center, mm-hmm. then having a printout of the voter roll is pretty prohibitive. Yeah, we're screwed. Thank you, Kim Zetter. Uh, you can find... <laughs> Happy to help. Yeah, as always, uh, you can find her work at Zetter... Well, actually, you can sign up for her newsletter at zetter.substack.com as she continues to report all of this out. I know she's got a, a new story uh, coming out on uh, the Colonial Pipeline situation shortly. You can also follow her on the Twitters at Kim Zetter. Kim, always great speaking with you. Uh We'll stay in touch in the days ahead. Plenty to talk about, I suspect. (laughs) Yes, sounds good. Thanks for having me, Brad. Thank you, Kim. Okay, a quick break. And, uh, oh, a little bit more. Desi Doyen joins us for the Green News Report with a little bit more on the Colonial Pipeline. Yes, indeedy. And I hope you've got some better news in there. <laughs> did you did you hear Kim say when, when I said what stops any of this from happening? She couldn't wait for me to finish the question to say nothing. Nothing stops it. <laughs> I know. We I know. And it's crazy that this so is the situation screwed. that we are in. But, you know, face it first and then try to solve it. So that's where we are. That's where we are. And where we will be after we come back is with the latest Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. You are listening to The Bradcast. <laughs> The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. Well, I'm looking at your list here, Des. You, you've got a, a couple of uh, good news stories here. Good. <laughs> just, just a couple, not much, but we will take whatever we can get in our latest green news report. The Colonial Pipeline delivers nearly half of all the diesel and gasoline to the East Coast, and it's delivering it um, to the Northeast, which is the least energy independent part of the entire country. America's largest pipeline system shut down by major cyber attack. Air pollution from farms kills thousands of Americans every year, new study finds, ominous warnings of deepening drought in California, plus Biden moves to restore landmark protection for birds. All of those stories for the birds and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment people like lindsey graham this is him a few days ago i've come to conclude that climate change is real well (laughs) welcome to 1990 lindsey uh this is your green news report pull up a beanbag chair
Okay, Desi Doyen, when I saw this cyber attack on the Colonial Pipeline, I was trying to think, when, what did we cover them recently? And in fact, they were the company that had a pipeline spill in the North Carolina Nature Preserve. They said last year it was 63,000 gallons. Turns out this year we learned it was more than a million gallons. Well, I guess Colonial Pipeline is back in the news again today. Yes, sadly, they are the Colonial Pipeline system, the largest in the nation that delivers 45 percent of fossil fuel supplies to the East Coast, was shut down over the weekend by what appears to be the largest ever ransomware attack on U.S. energy infrastructure to date. Well, I guess somebody has finally figured out how to shut down Colonial Pipeline. The FBI identified a known foreign criminal ransomware gang as responsible. The pipeline company says the cyber attack hit only IT networks, not operations. As we go to air, it's unclear when full operation will be restored, but the company says it is restarting it in stages. Well, if the company says something, I guess we ought to believe them. Am I right? The Biden administration is assisting the company and issued a regional emergency declaration to ensure distribution of fuel supplies. Experts say, depending on the shutdown's duration, there may be price spikes and shortages in some regions. The incident highlights the huge vulnerabilities of the nation's aging infrastructure. According to cybersecurity expert Rob Lee on CNN, it won't be the last cyber attack on U.S. infrastructure. All of our industries are going through some level of a digital transformation, which means they're becoming more and more connected. Everybody is vulnerable. We are going to experience attacks. The real question is how can we be more responsive and more resilient in the face of those attacks so that the consequence doesn't impact our daily lives. Now, President Biden's American Jobs Plan has an answer for that. It includes funding to harden U.S. infrastructure cybersecurity overall. But from a risk management perspective, reliance on a single company for half of the East Coast's fuel supply is uh, suboptimal. Yes. And by the way... Doing anything about this would be against the Republican rule that infrastructure is only things, you know, made of concrete like roads and bridges, I guess. Right. Yep. There's that, too. In other news, air pollution from farms kills nearly 18,000 Americans every year. Oh, great. That's according to a first-of-its-kind study of emissions from hog farms in North Carolina that examined residents' complaints of respiratory and heart ailments Mm. from noxious fumes emanating from the expansion of massive hog farms and manure waste lagoons after the North Carolina legislature weakened regulations. In one North Carolina county, the study linked 89 premature deaths directly to emissions caused by the nearby hog farms. Nationally, the researchers estimate almost 18,000 premature deaths across the United States could be attributed to farm air pollution, and they pinpoint meat production as the leading source. Mm, I guess Biden's going to have to ban beef again. In California, ominous signs of deepening drought. Water stored in the state's mountain snowpack is essentially gone, down to just 8% of average for this time of year. Early season heat waves caused the rapid snow melt, which has led to an unusually early spate of critical fire weather conditions with record dry vegetation for the month of May. But some good news. Thank you. Electric cars, vans, and SUVs will be cheaper for car makers to produce than fossil fuel vehicles by 2027. That's according to a new forecast from Bloomberg New Energy Finance, which projects that larger vehicles like SUVs will be as cheap to produce as conventional gas and diesel vehicles by 2026 and smaller cars by 2027. Nice. Bloomberg attributes this fast inflection point to the rapidly falling costs of manufacturing batteries as 
well as car makers ramping up production lines dedicated solely to electric vehicles. So they'll be the same price, hopefully, as a internal combustion car, and yet you'll never have to pay for gas ever again. Exactly. Finally, great news for birds. The Biden administration has finally begun the process of revoking a Trump administration rule change that gutted the Migratory Bird Treaty Act that would have allowed industry and individuals to kill unlimited birds as long as they claimed it was unintentional. The Biden administration has proposed new rules to replace the old Trump rules. And presumably... They're better rules. Yes. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyne. And this has been your Green News Report. See, that yeah. was some good news. Yeah, yeah. We are for, for the birds, aren't we? <laughs> uh, very quickly, uh, there was a, a follow-up on the uh, these ominous signs about the uh, drought here, the deepening drought in California. Follow-up since we laid down the Green News report today from California Governor Gavin Newsom. Yes, Gavin Newsom has uh, increased the drought emergency announcement that he made uh, to most of the state instead of just the few that were in the Central Valley where most of California's farming counties. is. Yeah, it's it's now almost it's 41 out of 58 counties. It oh covers boy. only about 30 percent of the population, uh-huh. but it covers most of California's agriculture industry from the Central Valley all the way up to the Oregon border. And not much rain in sight with the ice pack gone. Uh, and uh, this time of year, not much rain in sight until, boy, way later in the year. If yes. Then at this so point. it's very ominous for uh, fire weather and fire season coming up. Also, I note uh, now we're beginning to see panic buying of gas. Gas on the East Coast? Yes, in North Carolina, there are a few uh, gas stations that are uh, already announcing that they are running out of gas because mm-hmm. consumers are rushing to fill their tanks out of fear that they'll get locked out. So it's every man for themselves because apparently they don't believe or trust in their state government to ensure that there will be consistent fuel supplies. Oh, Mad Max has begun. Yeah. You know, if you have an electric car and solar panels on your house, you don't have to worry about that sort of thing. This Unless, is of course, there's a ransomware attack on the electric car network (laughs) oh also that but at least you can't cyber attack the sun so there's that Mm, they're working on it we'll see (laughs) all right got to get out thank you very much to our producer desi doyan to my guest today cybersecurity journalist kim zatter and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us it is always appreciated if you missed any portion of today's show or you'd like to hear it again or you'd like to share it with your friends and family and neighbors and enemies, you can download it for free anytime at bradblog.com. All of this made possible by those of you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate. And hey, if you haven't done that in a while, please do. And if you are there and you want to sign up for a automated monthly uh, contribution of any amount you like, Boy, would that be greatly appreciated. You can drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, you will find me at the Brad Blog. That is it. Until we meet again, I hope tomorrow. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. I'm